Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you to find Acts chapter number 25. Acts chapter 25. Uh, we are making our way through this wonderful book. Uh, what, a, what a great time that I've had studying it and preaching it. And here we find ourselves in Acts chapter number 25. So in this passage of Scripture, in this section, uh, we find that Paul is going to stand in front of Festus now. He was standing in front of Felix, but all of a sudden Felix is done. He's done. There's no more Felix. Festus now comes on the scene. The last time we see Felix is in chapter number 24 over in verse number 27. And we know that he left Paul in prison for two years. And then he vacated. So why why did he vacate the premise? Uh, He vacated because according to historians, Felix was so inept that uh, the whole providence of Judea was in an uproar. He could not lead. Remember, Felix was an ex-slave, and the whole reason he got the governorship there in Caesarea was because his brother, who knew somebody, who knew somebody, who knew somebody, got him promoted until he was the governor there in Caesarea. So you had a a former slave, and and we find that uh, the, uh, the historian Josephus simply says this. He says that it was so bad, he said it was a slave that was ruling in a high position. And he was so dogmatic, he was so mean, he was so ugly. But Paul had his ear for two years. And for two years, he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with Felix. But Felix never found a convenient time to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, what's fascinating about Paul's situation is Paul's on trial. And when we look at chapter number 24, chapter 25, and chapter number 26... We see this trial again and again and again. Now, we know that when Scripture tells us something once, it's important. But here in this context, we see God telling us something three times. Three times we find that Paul is going to be pleading his case, and we see in this particular passage of Scripture what exactly he is talking about in relationship to the case that he's pleading before. Now, uh, before the courts and before uh, these that he's in front of this time. Now, Thursday night I made a comment and gave a little illustration about myself and Miriam and Garrett finding ourselves in an Ohio courtroom over the summer. Uh, Many of you said, Preacher, we did not know uh, that was happening. Well, probably because we didn't tell anybody. And uh, we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. It was a very difficult situation. It's very hard for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about. My son Garrett works for a very prominent um, home security system uh, company. And uh, he was out checking on former clients and trying to drum up new business when he was assaulted. And uh, Miriam and I feared uh, this situation because... You know, if you're going to sell home security systems, you need to be in areas where home security systems are needed. Can I get a witness right there? And he was. And uh, I thought, mercy, what, what if something happens and he gets assaulted? Well, it did happen. He did get assaulted, and the company pressed, uh, asked him to press charges. He did. And to make a long story short, 
A letter came in the mail subpoenaing him to be in a courtroom in Ohio. And uh, Mom and I both looked at each other and said, there's no way our son's going to face this alone. So we went with him. And we got there. We stood before the judge. And my son did something that um, uh, just still amazes me even today. He offered grace towards the man and told the judge he wanted to drop the charges. He dropped the charges. And what's fascinating about this whole story is that this individual was in prison earlier in his life. So he had served a seven or eight year sentence for uh, something. I don't even know what he did, but he served that time. He got out and then listened for the next 20 years. He didn't commit any crimes. Had a wife, had a son, had, a grand, had grandchildren. For 20 years, he did fine. And then on this particular day, he assaulted my son, and just like that, he stands before the judge, and if he's found guilty, which, by the way, he would have been found guilty. There was no case at all that my son was in the wrong at all. And so when Garrett... When he pronounced that he wanted to drop the charges, the judge asked him two questions. He said, question number one, he said, uh, has anybody coached you into saying this? To which Garrett said, no, sir. And then he said, question number two, is anybody paying you to say this? To which he said, no, sir. No one's paying me to say this. And so the judge looked at uh, the man and dropped the gavel down and said, Charges have been dropped. And you would have thought that we gave that man a million dollars. I didn't tell the rest of the story because I only told the part that needed to be told on Thursday night, but I wanted to share with you, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Standing in the hallway, the attorney comes up to me and he says, Mr. Robertson, I would like to know, can my client talk to your son? To which I looked at him and I said, absolutely, sure. He's more than welcome to talk to Garrett. Garrett's a grown man. Uh, and so he asked Garrett if he could speak to him. Garrett said he sure could. And the man walked up to him and he said, I want to apologize to you. I'm sorry that I did that to you. I had a very difficult day that day. And when I came home, I started drinking. And I had too many beers. And so when you arrived, I was not in my right mind. I was not the person I was supposed to be. And I did what I regret doing. And Garrett looked at him and said, It's okay. Thank you for apologizing. And we walked away. Now there's two lessons here that I want to tell you about the rest of the story. Number one, lesson number one. Alcohol will ruin your life. Please hear me out. Please listen to me. For 20 plus years, this man had zero problems. But his mind was altered. His mindset was altered. And what was the altering factor in his life? Alcohol. See, a lot of people don't understand that as a pastor, that's what I have to deal with. I've got to deal with the aftermath of the drinking i got to deal with the aftermath of the alcohol. And here's another example of that, as here I am dealing with the, the results of someone that tried to calm his nerves, ease his anxiety by choosing alcohol 
over the Lord Jesus Christ. I had an opportunity to share the gospel with the man. He told me that he was a Christian. Listen to me very carefully, dear friend. You can be a Christian and do stupid things. Can I get, a, can I get an amen right there? And, and I'm just telling you, I, look, I'm just telling you a biblical principle. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. You can write it down. Here's something that absolutely needs to apply to every Christian. The Bible says wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and who participates in that is not wise. I've got the perfect illustration for that in regards to this individual. I'm telling you, if you're a born-again Christian... You say, well, I just needed to take the edge off. Let me show you something. This ain't even the sermon. I don't know what I'm going to do today. Let me ask you, will you take your Bibles and turn over to Psalms chapter number 13? Psalms chapter number 13. Let me show you something that's very fascinating here in the Word of God. Psalms chapter number 13. I'm going to tell you what, it's encouraging to me to know that anxiety has an opportunity to get hold of every born-again child of God, every Christian. That's what we see in Psalms chapter 113. In Psalms, excuse me, in Psalms chapter 13. In Psalms chapter 13, David is filled with anxiety. Look at what the scripture says in verse number 1. How long will thou forget me, O Lord? Now I want you to remember who the, who's writing this. This is David. This is David. This is the one whom God has chosen. God's anointed. Do you remember when Jesse uh, was, was approached, if you would, and Samuel came and he says, look, we need to anoint the next king. And we find that, that Jesse brought his sons in front of him and he started looking at his sons and said, no, this isn't the one, this isn't the one, this isn't the one, this isn't the one. Went through all of the sons. And he scratches his head and says, it's funny because this guy looks like he ought to be king. He's big and strong and tall. I mean, he looks just exactly like what a king should look like. And God said, you've got to remember, I don't do things the way you do things. He says, so I, I, want, I want David. Where, where's where's the, the youngest son? He says, well, he's up there on that hill. He says, that's my youngest son. He's tending to the sheep. He says, we will not sit down until he gets here. So they ran and got the lad, brought him in front of him, and God looked at the young man and said, That's him. There's the next king. And he was anointed as the next king of Israel. He went there and he aided Saul. Saul got so worked up and so upset over the fact that the Spirit of God had left him as far as the fact that he had left the Spirit of God. And, and, and I'm telling you, Israel was in a mess. And as Israel was in a mess... He looked at David, Saul looked at David and said, I'm going to kill him. All of a sudden, David goes on the run. Now David is on the run, and when we get to Psalm chapter 13, he's been running from Saul probably about two or three years. And now he begins to question God with all the anxiety that's pent up, wondering, has God left him? Look at what the Scripture says again in verse number 1. How long will you forget me, O Lord, forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. And those that are troubled may rejoice when I am moved. There we see in those first four verses four times. 
we see David in such anxiety going, How long, God? How long, God? How long, God? Have you forgot me? I'm telling you, when we get in a place like that, we ought to look and see, David, what did you do when you were so anxious? Look at what he says in verse number 5. He says, But, I'm telling you what, the conjunctions in the Word of God are so vitally important because it brings us to a place where we see where the focus needs to be. Look at where the focus needs to be. David said, I have trusted in thy mercy. That's what we need to do when we're anxious. Not turn to the bottle. We need to turn to God's mercy. I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, I'm here to tell you, if you're a born-again child of God, you can't help but get excited over what David has to say because you were, there were times where I've been anxious. There are times when I've been down. There have been times when I've been depressed. I hadn't wanted to turn to the bottle. I wanted to turn to the mercy of God. My heart, he says, shall rejoice in my salvation. David simply said, I didn't ask to be put in this position, but I am in this position, and I know there's a silver lining, and it has something to do with the mercy of God, so I'm trusting in His mercy, and I'm rejoicing in my salvation. That's the lesson. My stars, how did I get off on that? Number two, let me show you a second lesson in this illustration that I just gave you. The second illustration is this. The second illustration has to do when you stand before God. When you stand before God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, when you stand before God, the one thing you're going to desire is mercy. I can remember standing in the hallway that day when we were waiting on our case to be called. The anxiety on this man, he was dressed to the T. He was doing everything in his power to project an image of sanity which wasn't hard for him at this stage in the game because he was sober. He regretted what he had done. And the one thing he desired of that situation was that the judge would have mercy on him. What he did not know was that a 19-year-old man would offer him the escape that he was desiring. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Jesus did the same for us. Jesus offers the escape that we need from the judgment to come. And that's exactly what Paul recognized and realized in this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter number 25. In Acts 25, we find Felix is out, Festus is in, Paul is looking for the mercy of God, he's already experienced it, He knows God is going to do what only God can do, and that's fulfill the promise that he made to Paul. What was the promise that that God made to Paul? Let me show you. If you've got your Bibles, find Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter number 9, verse number 15. This is the promise that God made to Paul. The Bible says in Acts chapter 9, verse number 15, But the Lord said to him, that's Paul, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel to me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children 
of Israel. The bottom line is God promised. He said, Paul, you're going to be my witness to Gentiles, to kings, and the children of Israel. Paul has very plainly been able to minister to the children of Israel. He's very plainly been able to minister to the Gentiles. He has yet to stand before a king until you get to chapter number 25. In chapter number 25, we see exactly what's going on here. God is fulfilling the purpose that he has for Paul's life. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 1. The Bible tells us there in the text, Now when Festus was come into the providence, after three days he ascended to Caesarea to Jerusalem. Here in this text we see that Felix is out, Festus is in. There could not be two opposite people than Felix and Festus. Felix was a former slave who drove, uh, if you would, the children of Israel to hatred. There was all these riots and difficulties and heartaches and hard times. The providence was in an uproar. There were burning of villages. There were bandits roaming the countryside. As a matter of fact, church historian Josephus says that there was a group called the Cilii, and the Cilii bandits were roaming the countryside, plundering people's homes and burning villages down. They also mingled in the crowd of worshipers, and they would take their knives, and they would knife people and kill them right then in there while they were worshiping. Festus was not going to put up with this. So in his very first act, Festus cleaned the clock of those that were killing and those terrorists. He set up a plan and he, he got rid of every one of them. So much so that Josephus writes in his history, he says this about uh, Festus. He says, quote, The brief but firm and honorable rule of Procurus Festus began with efficiency and with wisdom. The only thing is it didn't last. He lasted two years, and then he died. So that's really all we know about Festus as he arrived on the scene. But notice verse 2 and 3. The Scripture says, Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him, and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. Now here in this passage of Scripture, our minds are recalled back uh, to uh, the, the, the uh, commitment that was made on some of the Jews. They said, we will not eat and we will not drink until Paul is dead. Well, two years after that promise is made, the Bible says Festus comes on the scene and he goes down to Jerusalem to meet with the Jews to try to straighten things out, to try to get calm and peace and to try to make sure that he's got a way to be able to rule them and to be a, a good ruler, if you would. And the first thing that they mentioned, they said, hey, we want to get Paul back in Jerusalem for a trial. Luke is very adamant here. The Bible says that they besought him, Festus, and desired favor against him. That means that they persistently, they would not turn loose of the fact. That Festus wanted to talk about other things, but they didn't want to talk about anything else. The only thing they wanted to talk about was they wanted Paul on that road between Caesarea and Jerusalem for what purpose? Right there in verse number 3, to kill him. When you think about this and you think about those individuals that made a promise and a commitment that they would not eat or drink until Paul was killed, they got to be some skinny dudes two years later. Could I get a witness right there? I can't help it. That's what I think about when I think about this. But the reality of the matter is, is they probably went, these individuals that made that promise, they went back to the high priest and they re were redeemed of that 
promise that they made. But they still desired to kill Paul. Look at verse 4 and 5. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. And then in verse number 5, he says, Let them therefore, he said, which are among you and are able to go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. Festus declined the Jewish leader's request. That was a brilliant move on his part. He intended, if you would, to gain the upper hand so that he might have some leverage with these Jews. There is a greater purpose, though, or a greater reason, if you would, for Festus not taking Paul to Jerusalem. And that is called the providence of God. God it will fulfill His promise. And He's going to fulfill His promise. And He's going to fulfill the promise that He made to Paul. Verse number 6. Notice what the Scripture says. The Bible says, And when He tarried among them more than ten days, He went down unto Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, He commanded Paul to be brought. Here in verse number seven, or excuse me, verse number six, we see the term judgment seat. This is the same judgment seat that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that says this you must stand before, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before the real judge. And so here is the world's judge that Paul is going to stand in front of. It's a man by the name of Festus here. And Festus is going to hear what Paul has to say. Look at verse number 7. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood around Paul and laid many grievous complaints against Paul which they could not Prove. What were the three complaints? They're all the same. It's the same in verse 25 as it is in verse number tw- or chapter 25 as it is in verse number 26. And that is simply that they're accusing Paul, first of all, of sedition. They're accusing him of sedition, that he's trying to go against Pactus Romanus, that is, the peace of Rome. And if they could get this thing to stick, then the Romans will come down heavy on them. The only thing is, there's no evidence. <clears throat> there's no evidence. None of all that, that Paul was, in, was made any uproar. As a matter of fact, the evidence is against the Jews. The Jews were the one that caused every uproar. And the evidence is stacked against them, not Paul. There's a second accusation, and that is sectarianism. Sectarianism. Uh, that is to say that they were against the Jews, and the Jews had their own sectarianism beliefs, if you would. They remember, there were two sects in Jerusalem. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were against each other. And being against each other, they are trying to blame Paul for being his own personal sect when they can't even get along with themselves. And so Paul is just simply, when he defends himself, saying, Hey, I side with the Pharisees when it comes to the resurrection. They're the ones that have this sectarian uh, uh, philosophy about themselves. That was the second one. And then the third uh, charge was sacrilege that he had absolutely desecrated the temple by bringing people in, to which is a false accusation as well. And the Bible tells us in verse number 7, he says that the Jews, when they stood around him and they laid all these grievous complaints against Paul, and then look at the next word, the phrase, which they could not prove. Nothing they said could be proven in this situation. Verse 8 and 9. The Bible says, While he answered for himself, 
neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor against Caesar. He says, have I offended in any of these things? He says, I haven't been seditious, I haven't been involved in any sectarianism, and I have not been in any sacrilege. I have absolutely have done nothing wrong. I am innocent of all things. Verse 9, but Festus, willing to do the Jews pleasure, a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Will you go up to Jerusalem and there be judged on these things before me? So I want you to get the picture here. We have Festus and Festus goes, Paul, I'm going to be the judge. I know you're a Roman citizen. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let them try you in Jerusalem. I will be the judge. Wink, wink, hint, hint. You will be a free man. I will let you go. Only one problem. Jerusalem is in the opposite direction of where God said he's going to go. And Paul also knows by his nephew who told him, there are individuals, Paul, that want to see you dead. And so we find here in the text that this is a no-go for Paul. Paul absolutely does not want to go back to Rome. Why? Because he knows on the way to Rome, they're going to kill him. Look at what the Bible says in verse 10. Then Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged, and the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well know. Verse number 11. For if I be offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things, whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal to Caesar. Now wait a minute. I want you to get the picture here. Here's Paul. Paul is standing before the brand new governor of Caesarea. He is surrounded by men that want him dead. If he goes to Jerusalem and Festus tries him there, he gets off the hook. But he won't make it there or out of the court of law. They will kill him. They will murder him. They will assassinate him. That is the goal. Festus wants to try him in Jerusalem because there is no evidence that he should stand before Caesar. There's no accusation. There's no evidence at all. So now Festus is in, a, is in a very precarious situation. If he sends Paul to Caesar, there has to be an offense. There is no offense. And so to send Paul to Caesar without any offense is to send himself into a situation of weakness and something that he did not want to deal with. It would have been detrimental to Festus to send Paul to Caesar without an accusation. Notice what the Bible says as we continue. In verse number 12, the Scripture says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. He says, I can't stop Paul. Paul's a Roman citizen. I have to protect him. And while I would love for him to go to Jerusalem and try this thing and it be over and done with, because he's a Roman citizen, he's under my protection. He wants to go to Rome even though I don't have anything against him. 
And I don't know how I'm going to send him to Rome. I'm going to send him to Rome to give testimony to Caesar. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture because here at this particular moment in time, the Caesar of Rome is none other than a man by the name of Nero. Now if Nero rings a bell, you'll recall Nero is the man who hates Christians. He despises Christians. History tells us that Nero would take Christians and dip them in oil and set them on the streets and lampstands and light them on fire. They were the street lamps for Rome. He was a wicked man. But we know that when he first came upon the scene, we know in A.D. 59, the Bible tells us, or excuse me, uh, Josephus the historian tells us, which kind of goes in line with what we're seeing here in the text, that Nero didn't hate Christians at this time. He was just coming into power as he is there, and he is uh, making sure that everything's running smoothly. And so it would have been natural for Paul to say, I'm going to be fine if I stand in front of Nero. But Nero is going to turn on Christians He's going to persecute them heavily. But before Felix sends Paul to Nero, the Caesar, he gets a visitor from Syria. Look at what the Bible says in verse 13. The Bible says, And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. Now, uh, Festus... He is appointed the pure curator, the, the, the governor, if you would, here in Judea. Here we find Agrippa comes on the scene. Who is Agrippa and Bernice? Agrippa is the king of Syria. He has arrived with his entourage to make a courtesy call to Festus because he wants to make sure that the new governor knows that everything's go okay. Now what's fascinating about this is that here in Festus, we see the superiority of Festus to Herod. Herod, even though he was king of Syria and king of this region, he had zero power. Who had the power? Rome. So what, what, why do we even have this king here? It was just tradition. As a matter of fact, he's going to be the very last king in the Herodian dynasty that was of the Herods. This is the very last king this king, Herod Agrippa II. Now, let's just have a little history lesson and say, have a little history lesson. Dear God, this whole sermon's about the history of what's going on. I agree, but hang in there with me. Then we find here in the text that the Herods were Edomites. And the Edomites obviously were Jewish. But they had nothing to do, if you would, with what's going on here. The Edomites were, if you would, descendants of Esau. And the very first Herod that ever came on the scene was Herod the Great. You'll recall Herod the Great killed all the babies in Bethlehem when our Lord was born in an attempt to snuff out the life of the Messiah. He regarded his throne, uh, Jesus' throne, as a rival to his own throne, and Herod the Great had all the babies uh, dead. We know that. We remember that in history. Then, Herod the Great's son, who is Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas is the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. All right, number three. The grandson was Herod Agrippa I. He was the one that resided in Caesarea some 15 years earlier than this. He's the one that had the apostle James put to death with a sword in Acts chapter 12. And then God killed him. Rome came in 
and totally took control over everything. And so here when King Agrippa II comes to the scene, we see he comes into Caesarea and there's no doubt he is recalling in his mind the lineage and heritage of his family. And in thinking about the lineage and heritage of his family, we know that there's a lot of memories there and a lot of memories that frustrate him. One thing about Herod, Agrippa II, he knows everything there is to know about Jewish affairs. Here's something else about Herod that is disgusting, and that is Bernice. Bernice's story is a little bit complicated, but follow with me, if you would, in regards to verse number 13. The Bible says that in certain days Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to salute Festus. Anytime you see Agrippa in these passages of Scripture, Bernice is always with him. Why is that so? Because he can't get away from the wickedness of his own sin. What do you mean? Well, when you look at the story of Bernice and you look at her heritage, you have to first of all identify who she was. She was the sister of Felix's wife. Now you remember, Felix is the former governor, if you would, of this region of Caesarea. His wife was Drusilla. Drusilla, and if you would here in this passage of Scripture, Bernice, are sisters. Here's something else that's fascinating. They had a brother. Their brother's name is Agrippa. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying that Bernice is having a relationship, a sexual relationship, with her brother Agrippa. It's incest. Here we find Agrippa and also Bernice participating in an incestuous relationship, which, by the way, in Jewish law, it was capital punishment if you participated in such activity. But here's a man that's been lifted up to a vessel king who has absolutely no power, but his sin follows him everywhere. And her sin follows her everywhere as well. According to Josephus, ever so often she would have an interlude with a lover, but would always come back to Agrippa because the lover would leave her when he found out about the incest she kept perpetuating. In fact, we find that Vespian's son, his name was Titus, who was instrumental in the destruction of Jerusalem, took Bernice as his lover. And when he took her to Rome, the gossip became so bad around Rome that he had to dump her because uh, she went right back to her brother, Agrippa. This is the kind of relationship that they had. Now, in verses 14 through 21, Festus shares his predicament with Agrippa and Bernice. Notice what the Scripture says very quickly, and my time is gone, but i got to give you this. The Bible says there in the text, in verse number 14, And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's case unto the king, saying, There's a certain man left in bonds by Felix, who and about whom, when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die, before that which he is accused and have accusers face to face. 
and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they came hither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up and brought none accusations of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus who was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Now let me stop right there and say this parenthetically. So here we see Festus does not believe in Jesus Christ. He is confused. He says, I don't understand it. I thought they were going to bring accusations against this man named Paul and all they're talking about is superstition of a man that's dead and Paul says he's alive. Verse number 20. And because I doubt such a manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged on these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also hear the man myself tomorrow, said he, so shall I hear him. Now get the picture here. What we see here is Festus throwing up his hands and saying, I don't know what this is about. You know everything there is about Jewish law. You know everything there is about Jewish tradition. So I'm asking you, Festus, I need your help. And Festus says, I'll this, or, or, or Agrippa says, I'll help him. I, 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 I'll help you. I, I'll listen to him. So we find in verse number 23, On the morrow when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp, that was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and the principal men of the city. Festus, uh, Festus uh, commanded Paul to be brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa, all the men which are here present with us, you see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dwelt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain things to write unto my Lord. Wherefore I have brought him forth before you, and specifically before King Agrippa, that after examination that I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and to not with all to signify the crimes laid against him. What we find here in the text again is King Agrippa listening to Paul's case and King Agrippa saying, he's innocent. He's innocent. When you read this passage of Scripture, you have to ask yourself the question, what in the world is going on here? What lessons can we learn from this text? There are four very quick lessons that I've got to give you in two minutes. I'll give you one every, I'll give you two every one minute. Here we go. Let's give me the first one. First one. Here's the first lesson Satan opposes the efforts of God's people. Satan will do everything in his power to oppose the efforts of God's people. Listen to me very carefully this evening. The devil wanted to do everything in his power to shut down the wild game dinner. In looking at it through the lens of the providence of God, God said that we are commanded to make sure that we preach the gospel to all people. 
And just using just what we've been through in the course of this wild game dinner as a church, I'm telling you, the devil did everything in his power to shut it down. He did everything in his power. Don't, you can't have this building. You can't have that building. You can't have this building. You can't have that building. And the fact of the matter, God was working in this whole time as Satan was opposing the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like now, the devil wants to do everything in his power to take your mind off of the gospel. Let me show you something very quickly over in uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. In verse number 13, the Bible says this. The scripture says, beginning in verse number 13, he says, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Listen to me very carefully. We want to think, I think I said this Thursday night, we want to think the devil is some gremlin with a pitchfork and and pointy ears and a long tail. He's not. The Bible says he can transform himself into the angel of light and make things look like everything's okay. For what purpose? To oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two. The second lesson we see here, God works behind the scenes through His providential power to bring about His will. God will bring about His will. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Here's what we've got to understand as children of God. That regardless of the situation that we're in, if we are called by God as born again children of God, God can and will use the situation that we're in. We've just got to surrender to it and let God use it. Number three. Here's the third thing. God has instituted human government to protect those who do right and to punish those who do wrong. I don't have time to read it, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 just simply says, Fear God and honor the king. Fear God and honor the king. That is to say that we are people under authority. And it is our responsibility to follow God. Here's number four and the last one. I'm done. Paul's example shows us that it is not wrong for a Christian to defend himself against false charges. We must defend ourselves against false charges. Paul did. And in doing so, he completed what God had called him to do. And that is to get the gospel to Rome. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today, as Paul appealed to Caesar, so too I encourage each one of us to appeal to Jesus Christ. May we follow the Lord in fulfilling the great commission of Jesus Christ. God has called us to go out and to preach the gospel to every creature. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you this week that as you are going, regardless of the situation that you're in. Let God use you, dear church member, dear child of God. Let God use you, regardless of the situation. For those of you that are here today and do not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord, you might be like Festus and be ignorant of the things of God. The devil wants to cloud your mind and to take you off of the greatest decision that you could ever make in your life, and that is to follow Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. 
The Bible says if we'll confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Dear friend, God wants more than anything for you to have a relationship with him. But I'm telling you, he's a gentleman. He did not make us, he did not make us robots. The decision to follow Christ is your decision. Paul chose to follow Jesus Christ. Paul could have got knocked off his horse and be blinded and said, you know what, I ain't dealing with this, I'm out of here. But the Bible says he submitted because he had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And the bottom line is it all goes back to the resurrection. Let me ask you a question, dear friend. If you were to die today, do you know for sure where you'd spend an eternity? Do you know that you'd go to heaven? You can know that today. I wonder, could we bow for prayer? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus as Savior. If you haven't, would you say this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. And this morning I ask you to save me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.